the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's simple truth moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning again, San Diego Saints. We are back with our series on the book entitled Homecoming, um, authored by yours truly, How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. Uh, Where we left off last time was we're doing the second chapter called The Requirements of Journeys, and um, we had pretty much uh, explained that the Hebrews' journey, uh, coming or going, I should say, or leaving Egypt um, and heading back to the Promised Land is a type or a symbol of uh, the Christian walk, Judeo-Christian walk, um, which is, in essence, as we described uh, last week, uh, Passover is a is an act of deliverance, where we spread the blood of the unblemished lamb on our dope doorposts. We get delivered from uh, death, the the uh, condemnation of Egypt and its culture. And it's rebellion against God, and uh, everyone in Goshen was spared. Everyone uh, was saved. And then we talked about uh, Passover, the celebration of that event, and the departure from Egypt was a beginning point of a, of a journey, not the end. And uh, many times we Gentiles describe you know Passover as bo- being both the beginning and the end. And um, to the contrary, they're not. Um, it's not. It's uh, way more of a beginning uh, of a long journey, which has about seven phases. Second phase is when the Hebrews went through um, the Red Sea. We indicated how that was symbolic of the Christian who has become um, saved and delivered uh, has now uh, experienced water baptism, and in, as we see in Romans six, they. Uh, basically uh, become crucified with Christ, and they are resurrected as they come out of the water into uh, having a new life in Christ, which is an interior makeover. It's, um, it's the beginning of that. And then um, symbolic of when the Jews came out of the Red Sea and they came out, uh, they knew they were still alive, heading for a new type of life. And um, we equated that with the born-again experience, and uh, all of this is related to the first three Levitical feasts of Passover, um, of, uh, I'm thinking in Spanish now, <laughs> pan sin libadura, uh, unleavened bread. And uh, then the third um, feast, of course, is first fruits. And, uh, but we journeyed on into the Sinai uh, desert, and we explained in Deuteronomy 8, that explains why Father God brought the Hebrews not straight to the promised land uh, to receive their inheritance, but rather said, we have a big part of the journey that you have to basically matriculate into the university of God because you don't know me. You've been away from me for over 400 years. And as such, excuse me, as such, it was important that we go out to the desert 
and um, learn of God, learn of his ways, learn how to trust him. Because he's going to provide for us out in the desert. He's going to protect us out in the desert. He is going to uh, give us our identity as family members uh, out in the desert because he is our father. And fathers do those roles of protection and provision and giving identity. And we're going to learn all of those lessons while we're journeying in the desert. And where we left off last week was the fourth feast, the halfway point of the journey, is 50 days after um, the celebration of Passover. And it's called in, um, in the Greek Pentecost, penta meaning 50, 50 days after the celebration of Passover. And the Hebrews call it Shavuot. And Shavuot is the... Uh, it's a summer harvest celebration, and it's uh, of, of wheat, and basically uh, it's called the two-loaf offering, double portion offering before God. And it's, it's where the Hebrews encountered God, and um, it was a rather dramatic encounter because when they get to this place called Mount Sinai, it is full of the presence of God, but they really haven't known this God because of the length of time they were under slavery uh, to Pharaoh, and they were away from the Hebrew God, the Hebrew um, ways of doing things, and God shows up, and the mountain is trembling, and there's thunderings, there's lightning bolts, and um, it's very intimidating and basically, the Hebrews tell Moses as their agent, you go up and see what God wants. And then when you've heard from him, you can tell us later. And that's what happens. And the law, as we know, the Ten Commandments are given uh, to Moses. I'm giving you the very abbreviated version of that. And why the law? Well... The law, as we discussed at the end of the show last week, was protective in nature because these rules uh, laid out by a loving father towards his children is for our um, insulation uh, away from harm. It's for our protection uh, away from those who would want to do us harm. And we know in the spiritual context who that individual and his minions are, <clears throat> excuse me, he was known as, in the Hebrew, ha-satan. Ha is the word for the in Hebrew, and satan means adversary. So he is the adversary. He's our adversary. And um, as Jesus uh, explained that uh, basically Jesus came so we would have life and have it more abundantly, and he describes in that same John 10.10 10 context that the only reason the adversary, um, uh, his purpose, if you will, is to uh, steal and to kill and to destroy. Well, in order to avoid someone who is our adversary who wants to uh, steal from us, to kill us, and to destroy us, um, Father God laid out some rules. And these rules are basically relational rules. And what I mean by that is there's a vertical relationship uh, in the first four commandments uh, of how we are to conduct ourselves to have a genuine, deep, intimate, significant relationship uh, with our Father, uh, which, by the way, is the definition of eternal life. If you check out John 17, 3, um, or, and or check out John uh, chapter 12, verse 49, and 50. And you should do that. You should check out those two verses because it's very important. This whole journey is supposed to end up with our having this, what we call eternal life. And the definition of the Bible uh, regarding eternal life is very different uh, from most of us of what we received as teaching, whether you were a Catholic, whether you were a Protestant. Uh, it was basically uh, we're supposed to die and go to a place, and that's why Jesus came. And um, we've explained in earlier shows that um, actually 
that's not the description of Jesus himself saying why he came. He said, I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly in John 10.10. And we have to look up that definition of what we mean by life, because we've been um, basically sold sold a bill of goods. Um, Life is not dying and going to a place. There's not a single verse that says uh, in the scripture, and I challenge you because I've been looking a long time, um, that the reason Jesus came was so that I die, I get to go to heaven. Um, I'm not anti-heaven. I love heaven. Uh, I want to go to heaven. Um, But that's not why he came. That's not why he came. Um, And that's why we're spending some time with this. So, So I'm labeling this show, title of this show, as Contending with the Law. And that's something that, um, in our journey, because again, we're talking about the requirements of journeys in chapter 2 of this book called Homecoming, um, there's a facet where, as we get to know our Father, we realize that our Father is holy, And we are not. Our Father is a righteous God, and generally we are not because we come from a sin, uh, fallen sin nature post what happened in uh, the the, uh, third chapter of Genesis with the fall. And so how do we get to know this God who is a holy God, who is a righteous God, and we are the opposite? So that's what we're going to do uh, about discussing today. What and how do we explain the purpose of coming to Mount Sinai, receiving the law, and what are we supposed to do with that? And there's been a lot of what I would call inaccurate teaching, unfortunately, when you try to bring the Hebrew blueprint, the Hebrew model of something and then you bring a lot of Greek Western linear ideas um, to that Hebrew model, and they're just, they're not in sync at all. Um, you can't do that. And we've been trying to do that, folks, for about 2,000 years, and it hasn't worked out. So we're going to take some time today to talk about um, why the law, and um, we got to know our. Lord and Savior in the first three Levitical feasts, that when we came to realize that that blood of the Lamb at Passover delivered us from death, and that's why the Son was sent. We can see all the symbolism here. Uh, when John the Baptist saw Jesus showing up, uh, coming down the road, he said, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So you can see all the symbolism here. And we got delivered from death at Passover. Um, we went down into the Red Sea, um, symbolic of what happens when we uh, get baptized in water baptism in Romans chapter 6. Uh, we go in and we, we basically um, die to our old nature. We make a commitment to say that old um, post-fallen world nature that unfortunately we inherited uh, from our original parents uh, where they bought into the rebellion of of Satan in Genesis chapter 3 and handed over their authority to have dominion over the earth over to the enemy, unfortunately. Um, and, and Jesus, uh, as the Lamb, came to uh, basically offer us an opportunity. It's like a scholarship. All, everything's paid for. It's a free gift, free scholarship to get to learn what eternal life is and to basically pursue it. And that's why we're on this journey. So, um, and then we come out on the other side and we're born again. And Jesus is trying to explain. We see in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, he's trying to grapple with that idea. What do you mean I have to be born again? How, How do we do that? I can't go back in my mother's womb. And Jesus said, you know, you're born of the, you're born of water uh, when you're a human being, but but when you become a, a new creation, a new creature, uh, you have to be born of the Spirit, and that's the second birth. That's that's being born again, and that's what basically happened uh, symbolically when the Jews came out on the other side of that Red Sea, which was death to a whole bunch of um, of representatives of Pharaoh's kingdom, which we said 
is a type of of Satan's kingdom of slavery over us. And you realize when you're on the other side, wow, all of Satan's efforts to reassert his authority over us has been destroyed. All of his soldiers, all of the chariots, all of the horses are drowned, and we're alive. And Miriam grabs her tambourine and begins to celebrate life. So 50 days later, we're here at Sinai, and we're coming to grips with a God who says, "Um, I brought you out here to test some things, um, to test your motivations, to test what's in your heart, to test to see whether you really um, are in a position to learn how to trust me based on our relationship, to depend on me based on our father-child relationship. And in order to do that, we bring us, he brought us out into a difficult place where we can't by our own hands uh, provide for our own living. And there are going to be many miracles in this experience. We talked about those last week. By the way, if you didn't uh, get that program last week, you can go to the podcast uh, section at kprz.com. Uh, go under the uh, podcast listing, and all of the shows are listed there week by week and title by title. So what do we do here with the law? Well, we've already discuss, uh, discussed last week God's, Father God's motivations for giving us um, the law. But there's been, unfortunately, a lot of inaccurate teaching when it comes down to um, things that uh, Paul, as basically the new emissary to the Gentiles, and he's written a whole lot of epistles and letters to different churches um, after he had his um, come-to-Jesus moment and on the road to Damascus. And, um, and he basically in uh, Romans chapter 6 starts talking about uh, water baptism, and I'm not going to go over that. Again, check it out in the show from last week. Um, But basically, the reason we go through um, water baptism is to make a commitment to say and a realization that this power of sin, of our fallen nature, um, no longer has the authority over us. It doesn't, it's, it's not to have its power to control us. And so does it involve forgiveness of sin? Of course. Uh, We get that, you know, at the first step of Passover, where um, at the cross, Jesus um, became an expiation or an atonement for our sin. He took the hit um, on our behalf and um, became, um, in essence, uh, the judgment that we were to receive uh, for our sinful nature. and But we, unfortunately as Gentiles, we stop with the reality of forgiveness as if it were uh, the beginning and the middle and the end. And that's the only reason, or virtually the only reason, that Jesus came was to forgive us from our sins. Forgiveness is awesome. Forgiveness is necessary. Forgiveness is the beginning. And um, forgiveness in and of itself of sin frees us. It delivers us from what? From the guilt of sin. It delivers us from the um, shame of sin. It begins, gives us a new beginning. It's probably the best way to put it. It, It's like a scholarship. It's like an all-paid, someone else paid the price, and... But it's a scholarship to what? And it's not a diploma. And that's why we're talking about this requirement of journeys. Um, Unfortunately, we Gentiles uh, stop at the beginning of the journey and say, that's it. We uh, got forgiven of our sin at Passover at the cross. And maybe we got water baptized and maybe we've been born again. But we are carrying that scholarship that's uh, that written scholarship, and we're trying to s- declare that it's, it's a diploma, and it's not. 
Why do we say that? Because the goal of this journey is not to die and go to a place. And that may seem shocking to some people, but uh, we've said this in previous shows. Um, Jesus himself identified what the goal of the journey is. And the goal of the journey, quite simply, and we've said this on many shows in the past, is to get reacquainted with our Father. And you can see that in John fourteen six. It says, I am the way. This is Jesus explaining this to his apostles the night before he died. He says in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one gets to, he didn't say heaven. He said, no one gets to the Father but through me. This is why we are being taken out after our initial experience of salvation and water baptism and being born again. This is why we have to do the journey out in the Sinai. And we don't teach this in Gentile circles. But the symbolism is very clear. Um, If Jesus identified the Father as the goal... In other words, when, we f- when our parents, original parents, fell in Genesis chapter 3, they lost their relationship with their father. They didn't lose heaven. They were on earth. And God had given them dominion over the earth in a kingdom context by handing all authority over to them with very limited exceptions, very limited exceptions, and and basically said, you run this place. And um, unfortunately, the fallen angels didn't agree with that uh, plan of God by putting us in charge over the material creation. And we know how that rest of that story played out with Genesis chapter 3. But on the road back, on this journey, we're coming back to the Father. And that's what Deuteronomy chapter 8 was. I'm not going to go over that again. Check that out. Look at all of the reasons the Father says, this is why you've got to go out into the desert. This is how we get to know each other. This is how our relationship between father and child is restored. This is what the, the lamb was all about. We see this in the book of Corinthians. It talks about the restoration, or better yet, reconciliation. Uh, between the father and his children. We see that in 2 Corinthians uh, 3 and and 2 Corinthians 5. It's all about reconciliation. Well, what does that mean? That means the fixing, the repairing, uh, the healing of a ruptured relationship. That's why we have to go on this journey. And relationships only get formed through experiences, You have to live these relationships out. That's why covenants are made. That's why contracts are made. Um, You really don't know a person until you actually get into a contractual situation uh, with them, and then you learn um, when you are doing the terms and the fulfillment of the terms of the contract, what type of people these are that you're dealing with. And so that's we'll study those covenants and why the covenants later. But right now we're talking about why the law And other than the fact that um, our Father wants to protect us, he wants to insulate us, and these rules are protective, the first four are father-child relationship, and and the last six are interpersonal relationships between us and our fellow family members. And so that's the summation. And Jesus summed it up very very well when he said, look, you want to know the summary of the Law and the Prophets? It's love, love God. And love others as yourself. That's it. It's very simple, but it's deep. And it requires a journey. It requires launching on that journey. And when we get to Mount Sinai, the law is basically given because of what Paul says due to transgressions. But he said it's, it's given to us because of transgressions until, this is in Galatians, I believe, chapter 3, until the seed shall come. And that, and that seed is a capital S. It's talking about the law is something as a provisional protection until the seed, capital S, shall come. Well, that's obviously referring to the coming 
in a in a personal way, in a in a relational way, of of who of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, as the his Hebrew name is is Yeshua. Is Yeshua means um, in Hebrew He who saves or um, or salvation. Hamashiach. Ha is the Mashiach is Messiah. Messiah is the deliverer, the anointed one. And so when the seed comes, then all of a sudden you've got Matthew 5.17 where Jesus on the Mount of Olives is trying to explain, hey, I didn't come to do away, away with the law. I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets. Rather, I came to fulfill the law, to fulfill the prophets. That is a major major uh, reshaping of what we understand as dispensational Gentiles. Unfortunately, without a Hebrew framework, we do not understand the goal. We do not understand the plan. We don't understand why the requirements of a journey. We will discuss this in more detail after the break, and um, we shall see you on the other side. God bless. Welcome back, saints. So we are delving into the issue of why the law. In fact, I entitled this chapter um, this week, call it, I'm calling it Contending with the Law. And Paul, the apostle, had a problem. And what that problem was was that his job after um, he was sent out to the Gentiles to bring uh, the the gospel of the kingdom to the to the Gentiles. And understand something about Paul. Paul was a Benjamite. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was trained under uh, Gemaliel, and so he knew the law backwards, forwards, upside down. Okay. And as he was sent out to the um, Gentiles after the Jews, you know, had rejected his, his presentation of just Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, because the gospel is to the Jews first, and uh, then he was redirected to say, I'm going to send you, you know, to the Gentiles. Well, as he's going to all of these different uh, Greek towns, these... Um, uh, Asia Minor towns, all of these towns to, to bring the gospel. There's a group following the Apostle Paul called Judaizers. And these individuals uh, were basically not happy with Paul trying to explain to the Gentiles that they were not under the law of Moses. And I want to make a distinction right up front before we get too far. There is a difference between aspects of the law of Moses. And what I mean by that is, is that um, there are 600, I believe, 13 different rules in the Torah and in the Tanakh about, which is the Old Testament, about how many things uh, the Jews were expected to do as far as uh, observances, as far as rituals, as far as ceremonial laws. That's one aspect, that's one category of when we say the law um, that the Jews were expected to, to perform in order to have a relationship with God. Now, there's another aspect of the law which does not involve the rituals and the ceremonial laws and the observances, and that aspect is called the eternal moral law of God. I'll say it again. The other aspect is called the eternal moral law of God. And we have to separate those two concepts because contextually, when we read Paul's letters addressing the harm that this group of of, um, Judaizers, Judaizers were basically Jews who were 
following Paul, and they, they wanted to undo all of his good teaching that he was doing to the Gentiles uh, by saying, telling the Gentiles, nope, you got to get circumcised, you have to keep this part of the law, that part of the law. And when we look contextually at when we're reading Paul's letters, especially the letter to the Romans, um, we as Gentiles oftentimes don't understand the Hebrew context of how the law, uh, of what the law consisted and how it impacted the Hebrews. And what, if any, requirements of the law were going to be necessary for us Gentiles? And so I'm just going to read out of a book. This is the first book I ever wrote. It's called God's Got a Problem on His Hands. And um, this came out in uh, 2003. And I'm under the chapter of uh, Grace, Faith, and Works. Are they linked or are they mutually exclusive? And um, when we're talking about the, the law part, I'm going to go to page, let's see here, 72. And I'm just going to read straight from the, from the book here. To understand the context of Apostle Paul's explanation of the concepts of grace, of faith, and of works in his epistles that he wrote to the Romans, to the Ephesians, to the Galatians. We readers must appreciate that many of Paul's epistles were addressing a problem of a group of Jews called the Judaizers who were following Paul to most of the Greek towns where Paul was spreading the good news of the gospel. The Judaizers were corrupting the good news message of the gospel as preached by Paul by attempting to saddle the newly converted Gentile believers with the ritual and the ceremonial requirements of the Mosaic law in order to be saved. Many of Paul's letters deal with the issues of the meaning of grace, of the meaning of faith, of the meaning of works, and their role in our salvation. And I go on to say here that Paul was comparing, for example, the free gift of salvation, of grace through faith, which he talked about in Ephesians, in Christ against, now listen, he's comparing, listen to what I'm saying, Paul was comparing the free gift, free gift, of salvation, of grace through faith in Christ against the requirements of following the law of Moses with its dietary, its ritual, its procedural, its ceremonial, its observation requirements. Paul was attempting to combat the poisoning of new Gentile converts by these Judaizers who were following Paul town to town to town. Few of the Jewish followers of Yeshua, of Christ, were anticipating that God, through the Pharisee Paul, would reach out to the Gentiles who knew little, the Gentiles who knew little of Jewish customs and, and Jewish religious faith. And ultimately, a conference uh, had to be conducted because there was such an influx of Gentiles coming to faith. It was, a, it was a flood. It was a tsunami, if you will. Uh, a conference had to be held in, and we see this in Acts chapter 15, with all of the leaders of the church. And it had to be convened amongst these uh, Jewish leaders fought the, who were followers of Christ as to how to accommodate this huge influx of new Gentile believers and to what they should be required to do, or what was required of them, as to the requirements under the law of Moses. Okay, so catch this new, next paragraph. This is important. In Paul's epistles, he compares the free gift of salvation by grace through faith with the Judaizer notion of requiring adherence to the rituals of Mosaic law. Okay, everyone got that to the rituals of Mosaic law. Paul never compared the concept of grace, the reality of grace, with the requirement in the law of obeying God. Obeying God is part of the eternal moral law of God. Apples and oranges, 
We have to make that separation, that distinction. If anything, Paul reminded us in Romans chapter 6 that grace is not to be used as an excuse to continue in sin. We, we studied that last week. Perhaps so, but unfortunately the modern church too often steadfastly believe that grace actually does function as a substitute for doing God's will, for obeying God or for following any of the requirements of holiness and obedience. And I say in the book, let's be totally honest. If you were to ask most believing Christians today whether they would be jeopardizing their, quote, salvation to heaven, close quote, by not obeying God, many would respond that they are saved by grace and that anything else suggested to be required of them is nothing other than a salvation by works. Their interpretation of Paul's letters is that Paul was replacing the need. This is critical. Paul was replacing the need to obey God's moral law with a free ticket to heaven called salvation through the ticket master called grace. Paul was never intending to replace the need to obey the eternal moral aspect of the law. The reality is that Paul never sought to remove the need to obey God and replace it with a legal substitute of grace. One of the purposes of grace, as Paul wrote in his letter to Titus, now listen to this, this is important, was to empower us to be able to live, you ready? Obedient and holy lives. So let's go to the letter to Titus. And let's see where that can be found. I'm going to read it from the New King James um, in chapter 2 of Titus, beginning at verse 11. Now listen how this lines up with what you just heard. For the grace of God that brings salvation to all men. That's verse 11. Listen to verse 12. So we, don't forget. Now, this is what it says. For the grace of God. So we oftentimes think of grace in a very limited way of only being forgiveness of sin. And what we're going to see here in these verses is that grace has a definition that is way more expansive, way more broad than just the forgiveness of sin. Just forgiving our sin doesn't fix God's problem of rebellion that's internally inside us. He has a solution to that. And the solution is to be found in what we're going to talk about right here. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Verse 12, and we're in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, teaching us that, again, this, this, is the, this is what we're going to define grace, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Next, next verse, 14. Who gave himself for us. Now, here's the purpose. Why did he give himself for us? And most of us, because of based on what we were taught, say, well, so when I die, I get to go to heaven. That's not what this says here when we're talking about the purpose of grace. In verse 14, he says, Talking about Jesus, who gave himself for us, here it is, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, how's that for an expanded definition of grace not just being the forgiveness of sins. It's grace is the empowerment that we receive through the Holy Spirit to actually do the part of the Lord's Prayer where we say, your kingdom come, 
your will be done. And what's so important is that in Galatians, uh, Paul says um, the law was there temporarily to deal with the issue of transgressions. But beyond that, it's to deal with transgressions until the seed shall come. I want to read to you something out of the epistles of John about the seed coming and why it's so important that when we went into the water in water baptism and we came out, we made a declaration publicly to say we were dying to our old life of rebellion and sin, and we were going to live to a new life of freedom from sin, as it says in Romans 6 at the baptism, water baptism, so that the sin can no longer reign, R-E-I-G-N, over us, so they were no longer enslaved to sin. It's important to be liberated through forgiveness of sin from guilt and shame, But what about the other aspect of sin as to its power over us? How are we going to get freed from that? And so that's one of the purposes of grace. That's one of the purposes of saying grace is to empower us to obey God so we can actually be free and be liberated from the power of sin over us. Now look at this uh, third chapter of 1 John. And let's pick it up in verse number uh, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And don't forget, when in Genesis 1 and 2, God announced that we as humans in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are being made in his likeness and in his image. Well, after the fall, everything changed, and Jesus, as the Son of God, was sent to restore everything that was in the original blueprint of God's plan for mankind to be in his likeness and image. Okay, so that's 1 John 3, 2. Now check out next, next verse. 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Okay? How does that sound about what we just read in Titus about the function of grace? Verse 4, whoever commits sin is also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now check out verse 5. And you know that he, being Jesus, Christ, Yeshua, his um, Jewish name is salvation, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. And check out verse 6. How does that taking away our sins? Is it just the guilt, or is it also the power that sin has over us um, that we declared that no longer exists when we went through water baptism in Romans chapter 6? Look at this, uh, verse 6. Where are we? 1 John 3. 3, 6, whoever abides in him, you ready for this, does not sin. That's where this journey is going. This journey is not going to a place. This journey is a return back to what we lost in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. We lost our relationship with God. And when our parents, original parents, were separated from the presence of God, in essence, using the definition of eternal life of John 17, 3, they no longer knew God because of their separation. And spiritually and eventually physically, that brought on death. That brought death onto mankind. But look at this in verse 6 of 1 John 3. It says, whoever abides in him, referring to Jesus, whoever abides, okay, that's a $25 word that just means whoever lives in him, whoever dwells in him. All of this journey is for the eventual indwelling of the Godhead into us as the children of God. I mean, if 
We don't have time to do it. We'll look at it a little bit. But check out John 14, 21, and then John 14, 23. If anyone who loves me, he will keep my commandments, and my Father will love him. This is John 14, 23. And we will come. Listen, plural. And this is Jesus talking now about him and the Father. And we will come and make our abode, our dwelling in him. You see where this is going? This is much more deep, much more profound relationally than what even Adam and Eve had in Genesis 1 and 2. And so as this abiding goes on that we see in 1 John 3, 6, whoever abides in him, look what it says, it, he does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him relationally. So verse 7, 1 John 3, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And here's the reason Jesus came. This is the one that I use all the time when people say, why did Jesus come? 1 John 3, 8. He who sins is of the devil, but the devil has sinned from the beginning. Okay, this is the second part of verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Now, you can't get any more clear than that. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. You ready? It's a comma there. That he might destroy the works of the devil. That he might destroy the works of the devil. That's not talking only about grace and being the forgiveness of sins. When Paul was standing before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26... The king asked Paul, why did you, of all people, become a believer? Why, why, did you, why are you following this Jesus Christ of Nazareth? What, of you, of all people, you were persecuting these, these believers. Um, you as a Pharisee, as a, as a um, Jewish expert in the law. And you know what? I'm just going to read it. Let's just go to it real quick here. Um, this is, again, out of New Kings James. Let's go to Acts 26. And he basically explains to the king that he was uh, knocked off his horse and, and uh, met Jesus face to face, and it, was, it turned his life around, as you can imagine. Um, and um, this is, it says in verse 19 of Acts 26, Therefore, King Agrippa, um, this is Paul speaking, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision talking about when he gets knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus and, and he heard Jesus and, and saw Jesus in an extremely intense light. So I'll read it again. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all of the region of Judea, that was to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles, okay, the next group. Now listen to this that they should repent. What does repent mean? To change the way you think, that they should repent, turn to God, and do the works befitting repentance. For these reasons, okay, he says that he got arrested, etc. And um, I want to go back up to verse 18, actually 17, when Jesus is revealing to Paul why he was being sent out to the Gentiles. And this is what he, Paul's going to repeat to King Agrippa. This is actually the voice of, of, of Jesus to Paul. I will deliver you from the Jewish people. We are in Acts twenty six seventeen, As well as from the Gentiles to whom I send you now. Now check out verse 18. This is why Paul was sent. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. Well, of course, the kingdom of darkness, we know who runs that. And the kingdom of light, we know who's, who runs that. But look, notice the next line. And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
The process of the journey leading to Sinai is for our sanctification, is to lead to our sanctification. In other words, to come back into God's image, to come back and to allow his likeness again to come into us. But when we come to the Lord, we're delivered from the from darkness to light. But who's going to deliver us from the power of Satan to God? That's what it says in verse 18. In Romans 6, we saw last week, the reason we did the whole water baptism with the symbolic connection to the Red Sea experience was so that we could be delivered from the power of the tyranny of Pharaoh, who represents Satan in typology. And 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 he's saying to King Agrippa now, and that's what I was told to do, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And that's why we have to say, if Jesus comes after the tr- short time that the law served to be a buffer— and to be a force against the transgressions. But when, as it says in Galatians chapter 3, when the seed comes and then he indwells us, everything changes and we get delivered from sin's power over us, not just forgiveness of sin, but the power to obey God and to actually experience eternal life all right folks there's the there's the music have a great great week with many simple truth moments until we see you again next week god bless thank you for spending your time with us excavating god's simple truth moments for more information and resources visit simpletruthministries.net that's simpletruthministries.net To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.